BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview Great Falls offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. You're ready for a comeback. And with Purdue Global, you can do more than take classes. You can take charge of your story, of your career, of your life. Earn a degree you can be proud of and get an education employers respect. It's time, your time, not just to go back to school, but to come back and move forward with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. Family Secrets is a production of iHeartRadio. This episode contains descriptions of sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised. Jessica Willis Fisher, singing her beautiful and moving song, My History, from her album, Brand New Day. I had been told that to be a good daughter, I must obey. That to be a good Christian, I must submit. That to be safe, I had to stay silent. I had given up my voice to survive. It was time I took it back. Every beautiful and broken part of my story was mine. Jessica's is a story of stunning resilience in the face of duplicity, deceit, gaslighting, and a childhood marked by ongoing, incessant abuse. It's also the story of being saved by an indomitable spirit and by a transcendent gift. And just so you know, this finale of our eighth season is going to be a two-parter, a thank you to all our amazing and devoted Family Secrets listeners. Story. 
I'm Danny Shapiro, and this is Family Secrets. The secrets that are kept from us, the secrets we keep from others, and the secrets we keep from ourselves. My childhood, our stories start before we even show up on the scene with all of us. And I had a story that, you know, at two and a half years old, there was a tragedy in my extended family. And some of my earliest memories were very much framed and influenced by this very recent occurrence. And by the time I have a more solid chronological memory, starting three and a half, four years old, it was already so shaped by these really kind of hard and traumatic events that all the adults around me were dealing with. And the way that showed up for me was I knew that even as my life was getting started, death could be kind of even just a second away. Um, being a super young child and knowing that other young children were suddenly gone overnight, I think that really shapes you. <laughs> in a nutshell, I, I had some aunts and uncles that had passed away in a car accident. And I remember that being one of the earliest things that I, I learned about. I think I had a really kind of loving and innocent, you know, early life and early years. I was homeschooled. I was constantly around my mother, who was bright and attentive, loved to teach, loved babies, loved children. And by the time I was four years old, there were four kids in my family. So. We learned at home with mom while dad went to work nine to five um, for a company in Chicago. And we would play blocks and we would do our flashcards and we would learn um, our numbers and our shapes, you know, as many children do, whether it's in the home, whether it's maybe preschool. But we would go to church on Sundays where my grandpa was the pastor and I'd see my um, little friends there at church, and occasionally my cousins who lived out of state but not too far would come in. And there was like a really predictable kind of wholesome rhythm to my life. Again, with the asterisk, you know, hanging over everything is that life isn't necessarily guaranteed um, because tragedy can strike at any moment. Through my young eyes, I thought my mom was just so full of light and so beautiful. She had these freckles on her nose and her eyes, you know, it's a cliche, but they really did seem to sparkle. Um, she had a beautiful smile. She just really seemed to love what she was doing when she interacted with us, whether that be teaching us, whether that be making food and you know letting us participate and I felt really close to her um, initially. The first nine years of my life didn't have any huge changes it was just you know school got a little bit more complex and challenging and fun we learned to play you know songs on the piano we would observe kind of the rhythm of um, as each year went by, things like Easter, you know, you're just kind of storing up these memories of the holidays and the special times and the rhythm with 
my dad, going to work, you know, our time with him was in the evenings and the weekends, basically every year and a half there was, there was a new kid. And how do we even know what normal is or if normal is even a real thing? <laughs> you know, whatever we experience day to day, that that's all that we know, especially when we're so young. And the one thing that did seem maybe a little outside the norm is, you know, I knew that not all families had six kids that close together. But I would say because of our religion and our extended family, there were enough families that had lots of kids that that didn't even feel so strange just because of the environment that I was in. And was homeschooling part of your parents' religious um, belief system? Well, the way that I would have understood that is that um, particularly on my dad's side of the family, as I said, my grandfather was a pastor, and I very much interpreted and understood that there were a number of things that were passed down that dad was bringing from his family and his upbringing and were going to be really important and foundational in the family that we were building. And I would say those things would be our religion, Protestant, evangelical Christianity. My grandpa was a Baptist pastor. And then, you know, not just a religion that we observe once a week on the weekend, but also this deep principle that some of life's biggest decisions should be made through the lens of our religion and whether that be having a bunch of kids, but also homeschooling was something that was a part of my dad's upbringing. And, you know, my mom had gone to Christian high school, Christian college. My dad and mom had met at the Christian high school briefly. They overlapped a little bit there. And so the idea that whether it was homeschooling or not, that the education should be essentially a Christian education. And what better way to do that than in the home with the Christian parents. And my mom had studied secondary education anyway, so she definitely had a, you know, a skill set there and a passion there. So that just really felt like a natural extension of things that my grandparents had decided and incorporated and then had been passed down. And we were the, you know, the next generation carrying on these traditions and these principles. So you're living in Chicago with your five other siblings, all very close in age. And every one of your names begins with the letter J. There's Jess, Jer, Jen, Jet, Jack, and Jedi. Is that right? Yes, correct. Jedi's full name is Jedediah, um, but we would call him Jedi. What was with the J's? As far as I understood it, the story was that if there had been more boys, it would have been the prophets. It would have been you know, Jeremiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, those sorts of things, they were going to kind of stick with that theme. But there were three girls and the first four kids. And they just kind of agreed on a name by name basis. And when they got down to the fifth kid, they went, it's kind of weird to not have Jays at this point. Um, so I guess they just stuck with that momentum after after the fourth kid. In 1999, Jessica's family's life changes. The tragic accident that occurred when she was an infant, in which her aunts and uncles lost their lives, eventually results in a wrongful death civil suit and a massive, I mean, $100 million massive settlement. As one of the beneficiaries of the settlement, her father receives a very significant sum of money. I did not 
know kind of what that number was or what that meant <laughs> in a very real way for my family, my extended family. Um, you know, I just remember being like, oh, dad's going to do something called retire. He's going to retire. And that just means that I'm going to get to, you know, play blocks with daddy on more than just the evenings and the weekends. You know, daddy's not going to have to go to work, which is just crazy because everybody's daddy worked <laughs> or maybe their mommy as well, you know. And it didn't happen right away, but eventually my grandfather also would step back from his pastorship. That took a little while, but, you know, the biggest measurable difference was, oh, we're going to be able to get a bigger house. To my recollection, nobody brought in the, you know, the kids under 10 and sat down and went, hey, comprehensively, this is what it means for our family. And this is what the roadmap is. You know, this was unforeseen for all of us. So, you know, it was this windfall. And I think it eventually turned into the shape of tragedy followed by blessing. I certainly had already learned plenty of Bible stories where that kind of dynamic was evident. We didn't know exactly what was going to follow. I was just happy that we were going to get more bedrooms now <laughs> instead of having all the kids in, in one room, you know. And I didn't know any different. I didn't dislike that. I was always surrounded by siblings. And like I said, you know, toys in school and all of that. But um, I just knew big change was coming. Never dreamed that we would be moving so far away and that those changes would be so far reaching. So my parents looked for homes in the greater Chicagoland area for a while. I believe it was multiple years. And it started getting a little strange. I remember going to a couple of these places and just feeling like they were palaces. I'd never even seen a house that big and just my dad being very unhappy with that so I guess that started giving me a little more context on just how much things had changed you know if dad could kind of not be happy with this you know what, what is he looking for and um, I think the other thing that's important and I could even feel at the time was that when my grandfather did leave the church dad was at odds with the kind of the changing of the guard and I probably will never understand all the minutia about that, but another large family with a bunch of kids kind of came in and the father was going to become the new pastor and dad was not getting along with him. And, you know, the finer points of the theology or the philosophy was, again, a little bit beside the point and above my head, but I knew that that was a source of tension and you know our community other than our family was this church and to kind of feel like maybe that was not going to continue so we were looking for a new home and you know maybe we were going to have to be looking for a new church as well so more and more of the bonds were kind of loosening around us and I remember being told at one point that they had been looking at houses in all sorts of different states now my parents saw this amazing house and property online in Nashville, which I'd never heard of. And um, dad went on a trip and he called my mom and said, like, this is it. We're going to make an offer. We're not going to look. Whatever that adult conversation was is, is just this immediate kind of overnight. All right, we're going to go see this new house in this place called Nashville. We live life forward, of course. But when it comes to our earliest memories, especially when those memories are traumatic. We're left to put together the pieces as we become adults, and we're able to understand in retrospect and supply language to what it is that we remember. 
along with the jumble of earliest memories is, you know, a memory that does not have that much unique about it other than I remember being in my parents' bed and my father was touching me, talking to me. And as you do as a child, there are many things that you experience or see or learn about that you don't have words for or you don't really understand. And there's a certain amount of trust that, oh, the the caretakers and the adults around me can help me with this, or I'm going to eventually learn the vocabulary that describes this new food that I've tried or this new you know, activity that, that I've been taught or something. But in this moment of, of this interaction with my dad, the moment that my mom kind of came into my view, I was just, just etched in my memory. The next time I saw my mother's face, I think it was just maybe minutes later or whatever, but I had been in their bedroom and she was coming out of their bathroom and her skin was clean and her hair was up in a towel. And it was just, I had this overwhelming sense that I should say something to her, that I should kind of maybe tell her what happened, but I didn't know what to say. I didn't have names for the body parts involved. I didn't, you know, I didn't really know how to convey to her what had just happened. I also didn't know why I felt compelled to say something. So it felt kind of like I was, you know, a secret was created in that moment, but not because I didn't want to tell. I just didn't know how. And it speaks to how young I was. Again, I was probably around three and a half years old or or four years old. I only have a handful of memories that go back that far. And there's some things about this memory that makes me wonder, this might not have been the first time that my father, you know, had behaved inappropriately towards me. It's just the first one that I can remember. So, you know, throughout these younger years, homeschooling, you know, nine and under, there were continued touching and interactions with my dad that never happened with either anyone else in the room at all, or maybe as he was tucking me into bed at night, he would say a little something or or do a little something. And, you know, over time and pattern, it was very clear that this was something you know, we didn't ever talk about it um, in front of anybody else. No one else was ever involved. And glaringly obvious, my mom was was very much not involved. And so I did wonder as to why that was. And other than the actions themselves, I think the only kind of what I would now understand to be grooming that was happening was that my dad would kind of drop information. He would kind of frame it as if he was teaching me something. Oh, you need to do this you know, it'll make you feel this way or it's something you need to learn so that one day when you're the mommy, you know, mommies and daddies do this, like that sort of narrative. And then working in occasionally, you know, mom doesn't know that he he would say things that were negative towards my mom, which at some point I just kind of filled in the blanks like, oh, mom's not involved in this because this is maybe even a reaction to like something that's adult that I don't understand. And maybe my dad is mad at my mom about, or there's, there's something that's not quite right, but he's teaching me so that I will know and kind of be special and be better. And I won't have these same struggles, but you know, not talked about a lot at all, even between us, but when he needed to frame it, that's kind of the frame that, that he gave it. And I would say prior to, us moving to Tennessee prior to me turning nine, because I turned nine just after we moved. Um, You know, I did not attach any sort of pain or overwhelm or panic 
to any of those interactions with my dad. I was very eager to please. I loved him. I wanted him to be proud of me. He was very much in control of the whole system. I had already ingested that dad was at the top, mom was there to help and support and submit to dad. And that was framed as a really beautiful, wonderful thing that God had said this was the best way to raise your family and it was all going to work out. Daddy was our protector and our leader and mom was the caretaker. And, you know, if there was ever a moment of concern or knowing that something was wrong, it actually wasn't about what dad was doing to me. I remember really being disturbed one day when I realized that, hey, something is off between my mom and my dad. And I care and love for my dad. I care and love for my mom. And she was really upset and kind of scared for him to come home one random day from work. And it was the first time I had ever noticed her anxiety and unhappiness. And I didn't understand the reason for it. But I just kind of realized, oh, mom cares for me. Mom cares for my siblings. Mom cares for dad. Who cares for mom? Like, I realized that when you set up the system in that way, you know, there's this lack of care and support. <laughs> and, you know, that I saw that I glimpsed in my mother and I internalized that as much as possible. I needed to take care of her. And I was told in my role that the best way to fit into our family system was to obey, to not be disobedient, to not be, you know, too much or hard to handle. You know, I wanted to please and make my dad happy. Most of those ways weren't this secret confusing thing, but that was included. And with my mom, it was, you know, I don't know what the issue is here. Something seems wrong about it, but I'm going to try to do all that I can to make her smile and make her happy because she was just so full of light. And so, like, how could you not want her to be happy and, and cared for? And to add to that, the insidiousness of, and this, I guess, is part of the grooming process is that your dad would compare you to your mom and say, you know, you do that so much better than your mom or your mom doesn't know how to do that. And so I can imagine the shame, guilt, responsibility, love for your mother and this dawning realization that there's something really difficult going on for her. She's in some kind of real trouble, you know, and doesn't have anyone protecting her. Yeah. We'll be right back. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City Featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. 
smart enough to anticipate your needs even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Zigazoo has made me zigzag. What I mean by that is I swore I would never let my kids on social media, but now I'm setting them loose on Zigazoo. Before I found Zigazoo, I believed all social media was inappropriate for kids. But I feel great about my kids being on Zigazoo. Videos are moderated by actual people before being added to the feed. Zigazoo is a space for kids to post videos they've created and to share them with other kids just like them. And since there are no comments or messaging, you don't have to worry about mean comments on your kids' videos. And you need parental consent before joining Zigazoo. Bottom line, it's a space that prioritizes data safety for kids. Oh, but don't take my word for it. Zigazoo is KidSafe COPPA certified. So weigh everything Zigazoo has to offer. Maybe you'll zigzag too. Zigazoo, a social network for kids. Download the Zigazoo app today. When Jessica's family moves into their new expansive house in Nashville, it seems their whole world is expanding too. Her parents have more children. Pretty soon, Jessica is one of 12 kids. The homeschooling continues, but it's different now, bigger, more involved. It's no longer just Jessica's mom making little lesson plans. Now they have live-in teachers for all sorts of subjects, dance, music, horseback riding. Meanwhile, the house itself is in a constant state of renovation. The house was kind of under construction the whole time we were there. But it really, you got to imagine a child like in Narnia when they, they go to the country and they're, they're exploring this huge house and around every corner is something that feels magical. And, you know, it's a 9,000 square foot home from a two bedroom apartment. You look at it, it's quite a privileged life. It was a rich life. And I was so young that there was a lot I was not appreciating about it. But even just the land itself, uh, it was over 182 acres at the time. And, you know, we came just before spring. So there is this real just magical, elemental, overwhelming bounty of a southern spring that I've never in my whole life even seen. So I loved it. And our life was now not the same as most people that we met. And they were all new people, you know, because we're coming into a new community. We were not very cut off. We found another church. You know, we were pretty integrated with that church for quite a while. We would offer our home and our land and church events would happen there. And, you know, you try to kind of make friends, again, mostly through church or some other neighbor families because we're way more out in the country now. So getting to know your neighbors, you know, neighbor is a loose term when you're on a piece of land that's, you know, hundreds of acres. But, you know, other homeschooling families we kind of got connected to. And, you know, I would counter other kids whose lives were so different. They went to public school. They may or may not have been religious. They did not have live and dance teachers and music teachers and all these kind of extracurricular things. Maybe they played soccer or something. And I, you know, I'd lead with, what's your favorite book? Because I was a voracious 
reader and they would just go, I don't really like books. And I would have this reaction that came from the way my parents talked about the philosophical choices they were making. And I just thought, wow, these kids' parents really aren't raising them right. You know, and I'm like 10 years old thinking this, but the space between not really being able to connect with my peers and and other children, we either had nothing in common or there was this dynamic of, I wish I was in your family. It just looks so fun. And I was like, I know it is so fun. But of course, it's not all fun. In fact, it's dangerous. Jessica understands that much of her lifestyle is one of privilege, and she knows why other kids are envious. But that's just how things look from the outside. Inside, the abuse from Jessica's father continues. You know, when I'm 9, 10, we are still attending church. There's this idea of right and wrong and things that are appropriate, things that are inappropriate. And so I have gotten this understanding that something about this is definitely not right to the point where I'm not just going to casually bring it up and just see what happens. I feel the need to kind of make sure this doesn't come to light. And still, I think just kind of giving my dad that benefit of the doubt and that, well, he's the adult, um, you know, and yes, I, I know I have another adult present here in a way, but, you know, I've already kind of been inoculated from going to her because she is either wrong in this situation or doesn't know about the situation, you know, and it did feel like I was going to protect her by not, I kind of need to go to her for help, but I feel like one, she can't help me. And two, that's going to undermine this idea of trying to, to protect her and not give her more. You know, she's now had seven kids, eight kids, and she's always pregnant. There's always something she's kind of running this drastically big household um so there's never this one-on-one time you know even compared to how it used to be there's so much less time with her so what ended up happening is during the the renovations that are happening in this house you know there was this time where we all kind of were sleeping in the same area there was this master bedroom suite that frankly was as big as our previous whole home I think I was just very over the top and anyway we were all sleeping in there for a short amount of time and so that's what helps me understand that this is quite early in our move to Tennessee because it was kind of one of the first things that happened with the house and the construction but um, I woke up to my dad lifting me out of bed and he took me around kind of the corner again of this suite and there was this sink area and he put me up on the sink and did something he had never done before. And it was way more invasive. And it was an extremely uncomfortable, unpleasant experience in a way that none of the other stuff had been. And <laughs> to just show how how much I would go along with this, dad would tell me that I was supposed to, to touch myself and, and would ask me if I had. And I would say yes. And, you know, it was just our routine. And One time he asked me, you know, have you done this? And I said, yes. And I told him I'd done it a lot of times. And he just kind of laughed at me and called me a liar. And again, still just really over my head, not something that I was worried about. I was more worried about lying to my dad (laughs) than I was, you know, trying to say, hey, this is wrong or this is unsafe. But this moment was totally different. I wanted to get out of my body. And it was the first time you kind of have this 
you know, they, they say out of body experience and I would have loved to be out of my body because there was kind of no place to hide. And that is a deeply traumatic moment for me. It colored everything that came before because I very much understood that this was connected, you know, to actions that on the surface were different, but I understood that they were sexual. I understood that they were inappropriate. And now I understood that whether he had the plan to come to this moment all the way at the beginning or not, these were very much connected. And I never wanted this particular thing to happen again. Well, and they were escalating. That was an escalation. Yes. I understood then and certainly understand now that's a, that's a major escalation. My mother came to me and just asked, straight up was like, has dad done anything weird? Has he touched, has he touched you? And she just kind of gestures with her hand. And it really is quite a vague question, but I knew what she was talking about. And I'm between the ages of probably nine and a half and ten and a half, somewhere in there in this age and just... You know, the shame, the coloring of the cheeks, the the flush of like, I'm so uncomfortable. This is embarrassing. I feel guilty. I just felt so bad. And why haven't I told mom if this is bad and I know it's bad? Why haven't I said something to her? Why haven't I done this? And really, as this is all happening in my head, I'm going back one to the moment when I had first had that inclination to tell her, hey, something just happened. But I still feel that same like lock on my mouth like I don't I still don't know what to say like how do I explain this horrible thing that just happened I I definitely don't have the vocabulary for that and I'm also immediately feeling relief because I nod and she doesn't ask any further questions she says okay he has okay it's not your fault it's all gonna be okay and I'm so relieved to hear this because I certainly don't want to be talking about the details. I just try to forget it happens as soon as something happens and now it'll stop. And thank goodness the adults, there's still so much I don't understand about this, but if it's just going to stop, I'm fine not interrogating the issue and just moving on. But that's not what happens. No, not at all. Initially, you know, I hear my mom raise her voice to dad, which really stands out. I, I had no memory of that prior to this moment. I cannot hear what they're saying, but I interpreted that as, wow, she's really kind of confronting him. And I think, I mean, certainly the reason why it sticks out is mom confronting dad does not fit with that pecking order, that hierarchy of how the whole family system is supposed to work. And I failed to grasp that, of course, this is really going to have no effect because my dad still has all of that kind of God-given authority. And, you know, my mom, she's still going to be there the next morning, serving him, serving us, being our mother. You know, nothing changes day to day. There were periods where it would be a nightly thing and there would be periods where it didn't happen for a while. And it would start up and be slightly different or, or escalate a little. And it stops dead cold, but, you know, time will tell. And unfortunately, things do pick up before long. But there's this process before that where dad definitely starts changing his interaction with me. There's what I would now call much more typical grooming efforts. 
It's, hey, I have a gift for you. Hey, you know, I want to get a hug from you. Oh, you're pulling away from me. Don't be cold, you know, really pouring on that what you need to do to be special and, and get certain privileges. And, you know, I have not suddenly overnight changed to seeing my dad as this horrible beast. He is still, number one, the person in charge, but number two, someone that I love and, and have spent my whole life so far trying to live up to whatever it is that he would like me to be. So he starts, you know, finding ways to get close with me and isolate me, even within our home. Why don't you come over to the side of the house and do this special project with me and no one else is around? And I vaguely remember there being a conversation with my mom that amounted to something like, hey, all you sisters and girls, don't be alone with dad. Like it wasn't some, hey, this is what I figured out. Let me explain what happened. Let me, it wasn't, I need more information. It was just kind of, hey, let's, let's make sure we're being smart. And, you know, I don't know what all that means at that time. And so it's just kind of vaguely there. I know some conversation like that happened, but if it was, hey, don't be alone with dad. Well, what am I actually supposed to do next time he gives me a command and that just seemed like there was no teeth behind that rule. It's like having a law, but there's no way to uphold it. And eventually he worked back up to kind of touching me again, but I don't tell my mom. And it just really does come back down to like, actually that didn't change anything. So like I tell her and it's still not going to change anything. And it's not my job. I'm the child. And I think it's so hard not to look back and be hard on myself and or hard on my mom. And there's accountability, of course, that needs to be there. But I mean, my actions kind of speak for themselves and that I didn't trust that it was really going to change anything. So I didn't, you know, she kind of asked, hey, help me protect you. Like, you know, don't do these things. And, and I did them anyway, but I kind of felt like I didn't really have a choice. Yeah. I mean, that seems clear from the fact that you did you know, you did take that risk and you did say yes. You're a child and you you finally, you speak what, what is unspeakable and nothing changes. So why would you think that anything would or that it would be safe or useful to say anything else? I was just glad I didn't get in trouble. Were you afraid of your father? Because there is this thread of violence that's running throughout and beatings and hitting your mother and hitting your kids and these wrestling games that aren't really games. Mm -hmm. And kind of like everything else, it starts in one location and ends up a million miles in another place. And yet I think there's a clear thread, a clear escalation. I think we didn't change paths. You know, I can look back at the beginning and see that these seeds have been growing for a long time. And initially, you know, just the teaching of how discipline was going to happen is that the Bible told parents to spank their children, to discipline them, to modify their behavior. But also there was this larger teaching that I heard from multiple pulpits and teachings and sermons and things that we're all sinners and we are all bad at heart. Our bodies, our, our, the flesh tempts us, you know, as children will be tempted to pinch our brothers. As adults, there's things like murder and adultery, you know, right here in the Ten Commandments, which we would constantly go over with mom and at Sunday school and things. And so this teaching, a lot of times it's called total depravity. 
is like the theological word. And I, I certainly heard a lot of theological phrases with between my dad, my grandpa, a lot of kids wouldn't even hear things like this unless they were going to seminary <laughs> at some point and they're an adult. But I actually did hear these things as, as kids. And so the teaching of, you know, children are born naturally bad with a sin nature and that the proper way a parent to truly love their child is to instruct them in the way that they should go um, so that they will become good adults and and that spanking is definitely a part of that and there's something to be said about where do we know that something like that is wrong our body tells us you know my body told me that incident when dad did something new and it was it was horrible it was my body that was telling me uh 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 no 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 i i got to get out i did not have a thought or a teaching that told me it was wrong it was a really visceral physical sense and as far as you know the spanking and stuff my mom was so so viewed it as having a place a proper place but she much rather talked to us much rather reason with us appeal to our better natures have us write a couple bible verses or apologize you know as opposed to i'm just going to spank you in fact if that felt necessary she would usually well dad is going to spank you so she wasn't even really seen as the person who could do the worst version of that i stole something when i was really little still in chicago and I think I had done that maybe a couple times and it started bothering my parents. I was like, "Okay, wait a second. Do we have a little kleptomaniac on our hands?" And I got whooped. I mean, it was it was bad. It had bruises and I did not view that as wrong, but my body was so terrified, you know. And so this is quite young and although I loved being the perfect little girl you know occasionally i would get in trouble and it really is a great motivator <laughs> to not be bad whatever that standard is whatever your parents you know are saying this is what a good girl does is what a bad girl does the punishment is pretty darn severe and even when i wasn't in trouble i have all these other younger siblings and some of them were quite troublesome according to my parents and you know by the time we're living in tennessee by the time i'm going wait there's this thing that i'm a part of and i don't feel safe If you ask me am I afraid of my dad there is a part of me that lives in fear of not crossing a line to where I'm going to be under that paddle and if I scream or move he's going to start over <laughs> and it's going to be dozens and dozens of hits and I'm going to limp for the you know and that sounds extreme and I'm not trying to just be sensational but I mean how many times does that have to happen for you to straighten up as you graduate up it's no longer just don't pinch your brother it's be sweet be kind do not under any circumstances turn into a worldly teenager that talks back to their parents and i'm i'm starting to approach that threshold and certainly want to do whatever i can to fit into this you know system and this family and this religion and and so learning about the fruits of the spirit and everything and i saw my mom work so hard to smile to be kind and long suffering and all these things and see her struggle and crack at times and now i have this frustration of she hasn't been able to stop this she hasn't been able to help me and now i'm feeling that if i get angry i'm wrong how am i supposed to never be angry never be upset never be petty 
never be reactive and I don't succeed and you know I start to have this reputation of like oh you're turning into a teenager and you know there's this war to kind of try to be a good Christian girl while understanding that some very not good things were happening. We'll be back in a moment with more Family Secrets. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City Featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Hey, Sarah, I loved that spring break vlog you posted on Zigazoo. OMG, you watched it? Yeah, it was edited so well. I think you're so talented. Social media interactions are only positive when you use Zigazoo. Zigazoo is the world's largest and safest social media network for kids. Your kids can upload their content and see what their friends are up to. With Zigazoo, they can create videos, enter to win prizes, and try out the latest dances and trends. There's no commenting, no text messaging, and everything is 100% human moderated. Plus, all community members are real, verified kids just like yours. There are no bots, trolls, or AI. Because Zigazoo is about one thing and one thing only, and that is fun. Try out Zigazoo this spring break and let your kids share your vacation vlogs and best edits with their friends safely. Download the Zigazoo app today. That's Z-I-G-A-Z-O-O. In the midst of all else going on in Jessica's home, her parents become very set on their children, all 12 of them, becoming musical performers. This begins at home with music tutors and continues in church. And then it escalates. I think that some of my siblings are very naturally gifted, naturally talented, and Pretty much that always means, though, whether there's initial interest or ability, it was also paired with, for example, the second sibling, my brother, he worked very hard, obsessively. He would sit and, you know, play his whistle over and over, but he was nine years old and able to play full speed music that matched the records, like this really complex Irish folk music, as good as the professionals. And, you know, I mean, I think that's where a lot of people throw around the word prodigy. And we don't usually mean that someone sat down and never practiced and just 
automatically was amazing, but with work and with this ability to really have skill at quite a young age. So there was that happening for me. I wanted to keep up. This is my younger brother, slightly younger brother. <laughs> and as he got to do things, I wanted to be a part of that. You know, I think there's naturally kind of competition within families, as in, you know, especially when there's a lot of people on the scene. Dad really wanted all of us to develop as many skills as possible. And then that put him in the position of having these adults come and say, how do you get your kids to do this? We're not breaking any records here. We're not making albums. The art itself is not that remarkable usually at this time. It's just the fact that we're so young and we're with the program. And my dad would joke with people, wonderful, well-meaning people that, you know, we're in our lives and our neighborhoods and our communities just going, how do you do this with your kids? And dad would joke and say, well, it's amazing what you can do when you don't feed them. You know, and we were not starved little urchins, but at times, yes, food and even psychological safety was threatened. A child would be, if they're not responding to the spankings, then they're locked out of the house or they're left on the side of the road. And again, it's not an everyday occurrence, but how many times does it have to happen for you to get the message of, oh, I better get with this program. And so my dad was really leading this charge. And I, I think it was a natural extension that just wanting to attract more and more people and show off, he saw it as his philosophy that was developing us children. And we were told that from the very beginning. It wasn't like, wow, my kids are so great. I'm so proud of them too. It's like, well, that's what happens when you have a parent that, you know, has this vision and has this ability. But my dad was still putting most of his attention into his business. Dad had this wrestling league and this taps way back into my own dad's upbringing and his own dreams. And this business is a way to reconnect with this sport that he loves. Dad has put all of that into this wrestling league. Well, as it gets to this critical point, we don't know exactly what's happened to all this money, but between this huge house and the land and the upkeep and the just bankrolling so many different things and the business, it just really seems like it's in this critical time. And it wasn't until that was no longer there taking up his attention that I feel like he then came to look at us as, hey, I've invested all of this time and you know what? You are now going to be my next time's up. I need my investment back and you're actually going to be my next business venture. To make critical matters more critical, around this time, the Fisher family's 9,000-square-foot home burns to the ground. It was the day after Christmas. We, we were without power. We cleared off our driveway, left the house because the heat wasn't working, and it was like 40 degrees or something in the house. And we returned to the whole thing just being ablaze on fire. The fire engines are already there. They've run out of water. They're trying to bring in more water. And the house was kind of L-shaped. And so the short end of the L was completely level, except for, you know, chimneys and a really mangled roof. It's the most shocking thing you can see. And uh, my dad jumped out to try to help the firefighters or just check in what was going on. And, you know, he had his offices for his whole business there. He had tapes for the next season of the televised competition and all this. 
again, lots of details I don't necessarily know, but, you know, very definitive end to that chapter of my story. And it was super weird because it felt like such a tragedy. And yet remembering that at least for us older kids, there was this fiery tragedy at the very beginning of our lives and people died in it. Our aunts and uncles died and nobody died in this. The house was gone. And did I love it? Yes, all my toys, all my instruments, all everything was inside. I had started writing. So I was like, my writings, you know, but we were all in the car and we were all safe. And there was something like immediately this idea that our extended family testimony, there's tragedy every day. But the thing that stood out in people's minds was when that happens and you praise God or you don't at least at least you don't curse God, you know, you view this in a long term kind of religious view so there really was no question that that was what we were doing like that's all that we knew is that you know and especially when it was like six of my siblings could have died and and we're all here but still it ends up feeling like it's a a before and after moment it seems for sure and your father's behavior seems to escalate at least in terms of his temper and his violent outbursts after that. Yeah, there's this weird in-between time the next couple of years because dad tried to keep the business going. You know, are we going to rebuild the house? What's going to happen? My dad was really trying to retain control. He was not ready to give up, I think, this vision of what he had been building. And so we tried to keep up with the same sort of thing, but, you know, we didn't have the same money. The kids that were born in that house view it, you know, so differently, but I was like, okay, it actually, in some level, makes sense to me. Here we go. We go back to having a place where we all have one bathroom. Like, it just, I was like, okay, this was too good to be true. It didn't last. The business eventually completely failed. The house, there was eventual clarity that it's never going to be rebuilt. A gradual thing, but, you know, within a couple years, all of a sudden we looked around and dad was kind of riding us with a bullwhip. Dad basically took the reins from my mom and said, you are not doing a good enough job with these kids. You know, none of you are performing to my standards. So now I'm your coach now. I'm your dance teacher now. And the truth is he couldn't afford to pay anyone else now. But he just was like, you know what? What's actually most important about this is me and my teachings. And I'm going to turn you into something that's profitable. And it started with a dance exhibition once a year and then it turned into once a month and then you know we played our first little music gig not long after the house had burned down and that just escalated over time um i would say the years of like 2005 even up to like 2012 was the slow march of developing an act so those years really blur together and then it gets really weird around 2012 <laughs> by 2012 Jessica's father's dreams have gotten bigger. They are, in fact, too big. He has major plans for the kids. They will record their music. They will perform well-paying gigs. They will make a profit. And in the meantime, he's been advised to set up a financial annuity, which will not only keep them afloat, but also enable them to buy musical equipment and to go on tour. So now we're traveling everywhere in a 15 passenger van and you just bump up against realizing that most of society isn't set up for a family of 14. You know, you can't 
get a table at a restaurant. You can't, you know, and people stare at you. And so, you know what? That's okay. Dad was steering us in a direction that was obviously more and more strange and sensational to the point where we'd go to the grocery store and we'd hear, you should have your own TV show. And there's been families that have been on TV at that point, and Dad had kind of been on the outskirts of TV stuff, and I think that got in his head. And he, you know, he realized it's one thing to have 12 kids in a row get up and do a little dance together or do a concert together, but what everybody's interested in is the fact that we're all one family. How do you get your kids to do that? You know, it's that same question, but now we're years down the road. And in 2012, we made our first record, and a big part of what we did was compete. And since we got started in Irish music in Chicago, it was part of our heritage, um, we had continued going to Ireland and competing. And we basically got a title in 2012 in one of the band competitions that was a world championship title. And we put out an album and that now felt, there was something cool about what we were doing. And you work so hard and you're pushed so far and then you start to get a little bit of traction. And what I loved was getting to see other people, <laughs> getting to travel, getting to have these experiences. And I was very willing to trade my kind of attention and time and skills to be able to kind of experience more of that. And right around that time was kind of also the end of the graphic sexual abuse for me. It was almost like dad was ready to ask me for something else, like there was something else he wanted more from me. And I don't know that I could have really kind of sustained both of those things, but now he wanted what I was writing and my voice and my skill, he had to push me to become this kind of spokesperson and develop me into this entity. Jessica and her siblings become a successful touring band. She's around 18 or 19, and her dad hasn't sexually abused her for two or three years. But the abuse itself hasn't stopped. Her mother is worried it's happening with another child, and she brings it up with Jessica again. And her mother uses a word Jessica hasn't heard before. The word is molest. This is the first time Jessica understands that her dad could actually go to jail for the things he's done. My response was to expend all the energy I could to just pretend that never happened, never think about it, move forward. I worked so hard not to remember it, but because it wasn't happening specifically with me, he was abusing others in the family. But I never asked, hey, this particular sister, did this particular thing happen? It was, oh, something else has triggered this. Mom is paranoid all over again. We all kind of talk about the problem. And when I say we all, you know, initially it's just me and mom. And then it's me and mom and a few sisters. And then afterwards, it just goes back to, you know, we're all a little bit more paranoid. We're all a little bit more on edge, but we are still doing the same thing in ignoring it. And again, I want to be really careful that I'm not speaking to other people's experiences or, or mind frames, but at least for me, just don't think about it. Don't let it happen. Just move forward. And this moment really shakes that for the first time because mom says a few specific things. She says, hey, this particular sister said dad has been doing stuff. And just to show you how some of the dialogue was talking about it without talking about it. 
mom says, you know, dad is is doing stuff to the sister. And I say, like me. And mom just goes, worse. And I remember thinking, wait a second, I've never told you what he's done. And since the last time I talked to you, you know, it's been this whole escalating behavior over years. But how, how, how can you say worse or better, you know, compare? And so I'm in this moment struggling with like, I can't believe I'm here again. What's going on? I don't really want to know. And my brother comes in and asks what's going on. And mom says, dad has been molesting the girl. And I'm just shocked because I was like, if we're using this word now, why, why didn't we use that word before? I know it's kind of this official feeling word. And I still have a very limited vocabulary, but I knew that that did apply to my situation. And uh, speaking of vocabulary, my brother asks, did he rape them? And both my mom and I like scream, no. I wasn't really clear on what that word even necessarily meant. Most of us have some idea in our head of what that means, but there's a range of things. So it's a really confusing jumble of time. And there's certain things that feel very distinct and clear to me that have like not faded with the years at all and other chunks that are missing. But what was really new about that is that one of my brothers found out. But dad did not confirm anything. Nobody talked specifics. I did not volunteer specifics. I did not go to any of my sisters and ask specifics. And what was so crazy was that once again, that incident was treated the exact same way. This is the close to part one of Jessica's story. There's more, much more to come. Here's Jessica singing from River Runaway. Family Secrets is a production of iHeartRadio. Molly Zakur is the story editor, and Dylan Fagan is the executive producer. If you have a family secret you'd like to share, please leave us a voicemail, and your story could appear on an upcoming episode. Our number is 1-888-SECRET-0. That's the number zero. You can also find me on Instagram at Danny Writer. And if you'd like to know more about the story that inspired this podcast, Check out my memoir, Inheritance. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Infinity Presents, a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Zigazoo has made me zigzag. What I mean by that is I swore I would never let my kids on social media. But now I'm setting them loose on Zigazoo. 
Zigazoo is a space for kids to post videos they've created and to share them with other kids just like them. Videos that are moderated by actual people. And since there are no comments or messaging, you don't have to worry about social trolling. Zigazoo, the world's largest social network for kids. Download the Zigazoo app today. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. 